point. We're reading Acts chapter 19, verses 1 through 22. This is on page 1689. Please join with me as I read the word of the Lord written for people. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, no, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years, so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured, and the evil spirits left them. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day, the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I know about, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. After all this had happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Achaia. After I've been there, he said, I must visit Rome also. He sent two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, to Macedonia, while he stayed in the province of Asia a little longer. This is the word of the Lord, written for his people. Thanks, Fabi. Hey, everybody. So we're doing this series called Unsinkable Faith, and it's out of the last eight chapters of Acts where there are actually shipwrecks and sinking, but it's really meant to point to how we build our lives around the gospel and believe in Jesus in such a way as that we're not particularly frail, um, but we actually have the kind of solidity for the kind of life that life actually is. Last week I talked a little bit about that there's, there's very different kinds of boats out there, and some of them are super great when the seas are nice and calm, and then they don't work very well when things aren't nice and calm. And everybody who goes out on the sea, just like everybody who lives life, is hoping it's going to be calm, hoping it's going to be nice, hoping it goes along basically the way you want it to. But the, re- the reality is, is that if there's one thing that's both true about the ocean and life simultaneously is that you actually have no idea what's going to happen out there. 
And the biggest question that we end up facing is the question of, I mean, nobody likes rough seas and everybody has to go through them. But the question is not, are you going to get beat up on rough seas? The question is, are you going to sink or not? And if you aren't going to sink, there's still a whole other question is, what about everybody else who is? Are you going to be able to help them? Because it's really just not enough to be able to take care of yourself. Not if you love people. You're going to have to have, be able to take on some other people in cargo, even if you're not sinking, because there's going to be a lot of people who are. And so that's why we're doing this series out of the last eight chapters, the seven weeks. Now, this is the second week. The first week we talked about that one of the first things that's part of building a faith in Jesus that's unsinkable is just to straight up realize that you have to not give up because God is with you. You have to not give up because God is with you. And that's the only thing that God explicitly says in a dream to Paul in chapter 18, is he says, I'm with you. Don't give up. Keep speaking. Keep doing. Why? Because giving up is what we humans do. And one of the reasons for that is, is that when you lose your sense of calling, when you don't really know who and what you are, it's really easy to give up because you don't feel like you have to be something because it's who you are. You could sort of be anything and define yourself as anything. And so why be stubborn about staying and be this thing? And so I said, it, it's, maybe it's helpful to think of yourself as, uh, as a burning candle because that's essentially what we all are. We are all rapidly approaching death and using up our life, and we can't stop that like a burning candle. Burning candles burn down. That's what they do. And, however, burning candles are also doing something good. They're making light and producing heat. And it's really up to you whether or not you're going to be angry about being the thing that you are and are called to be. You could be an angry little candle and be upset every day that you're burning down and losing your wax. Or you can be grateful that in the burning of the wax, you are providing light. And if you know what you are, you won't spend all of your energy being angry about being burned up. You'll realize that's what you're for. You'll embrace it with all your heart, and you'll provide as much light as you can. And you won't give up, because you'll know that God is with you. So what's the second thing? The second thing that Acts brings up that is absolutely central to an unsinkable faith is pretty simple. Again, and that is this. And you read this passage, what ought to come up is, you need the Holy Spirit. You need the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is a very elusive person, and he is also absolutely essential to what you're meant to be. And it, you may feel like that's a little weird be, um, f because I'm talking about receiving a spirit and that is spiritual and that feels weird to a lot of people. I don't know about you. You may be the sort of person that like wakes up with dreams of sentences from God, but I am a terrible mystic. I have never been good at anything like that. And so I always think it's a little odd when, when people tell me like God showed them stuff. I'm like, okay, awesome. Um, that's great. I hope that's right. I mean, that's really how I think. And so it's when I hear this that I need to, to have the Holy Spirit, I need to be filled with the Holy Spirit, I need to learn how to walk with the Holy Spirit, that that is an essential part of an unsinkable faith, that is a huge part of what it means to walk with Jesus. It, it, it's hard for me, especially when the Spirit is such an elusive person. And so I was thinking, what illustration could I give for this that would be so disturbing, so embarrassing, and so memorable that we would never forget something of what it's like that we need the Holy Spirit? And so 
I thought about this, that on your body right now are billions of other living creatures, bacteria and other critters and arachnids and crustaceans. It's millions of them. I think it's billions, but I'm pretty sure it's millions. And they're all over you, and they've been all over you since the day you were born. It's why taking showers is bad. And they are actually so integral to your physical life that you can't be healthy without them. I mean, just think of the last time you took a really powerful antibiotic, right? It's just—it isn't good for the guts. It's good for your sinuses, for your skin, for all, for your whole body. Your whole physical well-being is bound up in the, all these critters that are on you, and you don't pay any attention to them. You can't see them. And yet they're there, they're absolutely critical for your survival, and they help you. And you can't be a healthy human, and you shouldn't even try to be a healthy human without them. Now, this metaphor is going to break down. (laughs) But in a kind of similar way, in a spiritual sense, the Holy Spirit fulfills some of those criteria spiritually. You're supposed to have the Holy Spirit. You aren't supposed to function spiritually independently. He is supposed to be with you. Having the Holy Spirit and walking with the Holy Spirit is incredibly integral to being healthy and alive in what we're meant to be in God and as humans. And when you believe in Jesus, two spiritual things happen. One is— You are not spiritually capable of being a divine receptor of the Holy Spirit. Now, there's certain ways God can get at you, but you can't walk in full union with the Holy Spirit until the Holy Spirit actually makes you alive through regeneration. He gives your spirit a kind of life that it's lost. But that's not all. He doesn't just wake up your spirit or raise up your spirit and then say, now you've got a spirit, you're good. Part of the point of being remade as a new spiritual creation is so that you can have a spiritual relationship with God, the Holy Spirit. Who may seem elusive, who you may not be able to see, and who may even weird you out a little bit but who you absolutely need. And all as, we, as we go through this passage, there's just all these different ways that come up for what the Holy Spirit is meant to do in your life and in my life. And I'm going to go over five of them. And so this sermon's going to be a little shallower. And the, my point is not to teach you everything there is to know about the Holy Spirit. You're going to walk with the Holy Spirit if you're a Christian your whole life. What I want you to realize is that there is so much that the Holy Spirit is doing and wants to do in, through, for, and to you. And that if you'll open yourself to him and not give up, you will already be a long way out to sea towards an unsinkable faith. The first thing is, is that the Holy Spirit is just flat and indispensable part of salvation. It's nearly impossible to talk intelligently or clearly about being a Christian without knowing that you're supposed to have the Holy Spirit. One of the first questions Paul asks people who say that they're disciples and they've been baptized is, do you have the Holy Spirit? Because these three questions go together, right? There's three questions that always go together. One, do you believe in Jesus? 
the immediate question that comes after that is, great, have you been baptized into his name? And have you received the Holy Spirit? Those go together, and here's why those three questions go together. Because those three events go together. Jesus' first order of what it really looks like to accept him and belong to him is the minute you believe inside and say, I was wrong, Jesus is right, yes, I need what you've done for me to, to change me and transform me, to save me and adopt me and to justify me and to free me, there is an immediate outward action that he calls us to and he demands of us, which is baptism. That is getting put under water and brought back out in his name. Because it symbolizes cleansing our death and resurrection in Christ's death and resurrection. That's why we dunk people. So that you can identify with Jesus himself, not even forgiveness. There is a cleansing that is forgiveness, but in Christ's death and resurrection, we then participate in his death and resurrection. So we receive that forgiveness in identifying with Jesus. And when we do that, we are baptized, that is, drenched, filled, affected with the Holy Spirit. That's why every time we do a baptism here, we, people confess their repentance and faith. We dunk them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then when they come out, after everybody claps, I pray for them. And in every prayer, I pray that God would fill them and drench them and and change them with the Holy Spirit, because those three always go together. And so part of it is if you feel like, okay, so I know that there's probably a God, and he might be a little bit perturbed at some of the things I've done, and so I've said I'm sorry. Isn't that enough? And the answer is no. No, I'm sorry. It's not enough. Because the forgiveness doesn't come from you saying you were wrong. All you did was admit the obvious and say that you deserve any penalty you could possibly receive from it. The forgiveness comes from Jesus' death for you. So it's not enough to just go, oh, I'm sorry, I did some stuff wrong. You have to say, and I'm putting my trust in what Christ has done, and therefore, in putting my faith in him, I'm taking on his name in baptism. And God's immediate promise in that is that he will remake you through regeneration, and in your remade, that remade spiritual life, he will connect his own divine spiritual life in the person of the Holy Spirit so that you will never be a spiritual orphan and you will never be left alone. Now, that's important because otherwise we have we've, we've not kept our eye on the ball as to what salvation is for. Salvation isn't just for justification or forgiveness or acceptance or freedom or liberation and transformation from sin or even God's indwelling presence or our spiritual adoption. I mean, if you want to adopt a child, it had better not be because you like the idea of adoption. You had better like the idea of a child, or better, you had better like children. And so even our spiritual adoption doesn't even point to our adoptedness. It points to our sonship and our daughtership in God, in Christ, and our belonging to him and our identity in that. Not even to our assurance of salvation or to our future salvation. All of that is part of us becoming God's children spiritually, which we are not by mere human birth. And once you realize that's what salvation is— the idea that you could dream of receiving that and walking in it apart from a relationship with the Holy Spirit doesn't really make sense anymore because the Holy Spirit is an indispensable part of just the concept of salvation, which is why one of the first questions Paul asks is, 
did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And if they said no, he assumed they didn't even believe in Jesus yet. The second one is, second reason you need the Holy Spirit is that Jesus, is that the Holy Spirit makes Jesus really known. Now you'd be like, I know Jesus. Awesome. Or you'd be like, I really don't know him like that. Fine. Whatever, wherever you are. But this is what the Holy Spirit does. He makes Jesus really known. There's three verses in this passage that say, basically, and then God got known better by humans. So when Paul argues in the synagogue and then goes and lectures for two years in the lecture hall of Tyrannus, it says everybody in the province of Asia heard about Jesus, got to know the word of the Lord, which is the whole message of the gospel, and about Jesus. That is a big area. And that happened because the Holy Spirit was moving and causing people to see and know and understand. In fact, we're supposed to recognize that this first academic seminary lectures every day, do you know what it sits right next to in the Bible? Notice this right. Literally two millimeters in your Bible. The passage about handkerchiefs and aprons that touched Paul, healing people that they touch. They're right next to each other. But it's not only the breadth of knowledge among all peoples that the Holy Spirit brings, it is a depth of knowledge. Because when the Holy Spirit worked even among unbelieving people who are doing exorcisms, and protected and then unleashed that protection so that they went to some guy and tried to cast a demon out in Jesus' name without knowing Jesus, and that guy pounced on them, and crazy stuff went down. The result of—what was the result of that? It was not the intention of the demonic actor that after he attacked those seven men, that everyone in the city, whether Jews or Greeks, would all hold the name of Jesus in high honor. That was not the demonic intention. But it was the providential work of the Holy Spirit that even the demonic actions to destroy the name of Jesus would be turned around. And so the many people would not just hear about Jesus, but would actually be terrified to be seized with fear. And because of that, to hold Jesus' name in super high honor and to realize this is not a God we can toy with and this is not a name we can play with. Right? And so... The Spirit does more than just miracles. The Spirit teaches and causes people to know Jesus more broadly and more deeply. And one of the reasons why I think this is important for the rest of your church life is this. For more than a hundred years in the American church, and really this has now gone global, and it's going to be a global problem for Bible-believing, gospel-believing Christians, there has been a division in the church between those who focus on the Bible— and what's written and what can be known and thought through and clarified theologically, and those who believe that the idiom of ministry should be free-flowing, emotive, faith-filled, working and walking in the power of the Spirit, acting in real time, not looking back. And it is—people have acted like it is okay for you to be about one or the other of those primarily. And it is not okay. It is ridiculous— it is, it is like, it's like saying if you eat, you can only have drinks or food. Or if you, if you go out to work, you can either wear a shirt or pants. Right? Or that you could, you're gonna, you're gonna live today, you can use your right arm or your left. It's, 
it's ridiculous. And yet, for a very long time, in seeking to be different than the others, these groups have become more themselves. And certain groups have become more suspicious of Holy Spirit shenanigans and therefore more focused on merely the text of the Bible. And other people have been so suspicious of seminary and learning and training and lectures and classes and education theologically because if we go get a degree or something that we won't be able to walk in the spirit anymore we'll be all dried up spiritually inside listen two millimeters apart the first seminary and handkerchiefs healing people you're just gonna have to get over it this is how god works god wants us to use our minds to act in the world with our bodies and to be spiritual creatures that connect with his spirit and to see all of those holistically working with each other in a full human experience and not giving ourselves to scientific reductionism and not giving ourselves to hyper-mystical sentimentalism and not giving ourselves to naturalistic, licentious, and bodily, fleshly bodyism. I don't know what the words for that. But to actually be the whole creatures and out of it the whole communities that we were meant to be. And only by that can people of different personalities and different backgrounds and different cultures and different races and different families and different everythings can come into one place and to be what they're meant to be and live out their calling and to express their faith through their personality structure and to deal with all the things around them and only then can we have all the gifts present and all the I mean what good is it to have some academic church where there's nobody that can fix a link in this a leaky sink who wants to be part of that church or who wants to be part of the church where everybody feels everything but nobody can work their through their way through the logic of a couple of sentences it's crazy and yet one of the reasons I believe that the power of the Holy Spirit isn't more present in the American church, including the charismatic churches, who are all about the Spirit, and one of the reasons why nobody cares about the Bible and the Bible churches is because both of the churches have so allowed themselves to get confused spiritually that the power of the Holy Spirit isn't present because we're not combining all of the things we're supposed to combine in faith and faith. And I believe that some churches can refuse to move in either direction and be what God has called us to be. And I believe this church can be one of those churches. And I believe that we can be like the lecture hall of Tyrannus, and we can know our Bibles and know the gospel and be clear and think clearly and be straight on that stuff and seek to be filled with and walk with the Holy Spirit. And see his power working among us and doing crazy stuff. Listen, we did that prayer series. Like the next week, I was speaking at this thing, and Vince was there. They were like having like smoothies afterwards, and Vince like prayed for some girl who was having respiratory problems, and she just got better, like in 12 seconds. But we're not a charismatic church. What's wrong? What's wrong with that? We don't have to know our Bibles worse to pray for sick people or to pray for people who have marriages they're struggling or to, or to ask God to show us how to repent of our sins. We don't, we don't need to be dumber to do that. And we don't need to assume that people who love the Holy Spirit don't want to know more about God's Word. It's just, why not wear pants? Some memorable metaphors this morning. Okay, so Jesus makes— Jesus, no, you need the Holy Spirit. The third one is uh, that— the Holy Spirit does whatever he pleases, and you need that desperately. Psalm 115.3 says, 
Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. You need to remember that that sentence is about a God that is maximally good. Okay. He doesn't, he, so therefore what that means for us is two things. That one, he doesn't do whatever pleases us. And two, he does amazing things that please him that you may not like. And we actually need both of those because you do not need a mirror God that nods back at you and you nod at him and is just like you. We don't need that. We actually need a real God who messes with us and who gets in our face and shakes us up and does stuff we don't approve of and doesn't do stuff that we wish he'd do. And we desperately need God doing that in our life in real time. And that may include stuff that we just don't want to believe, like handkerchiefs and aprons going out and healing people after they touched Paul. I mean, that doesn't sound very organized, does it? Right? I mean, it, it kind of makes me wonder, like, you know how they had, like, the public baths in Roman times? I mean, does that mean, like, that somebody who was sick who, like, towel-swatted Paul, like, in the public bath, like, suddenly was he's like, oh my gosh, I feel a lot better. Or stuff that, like, we, are re- we, we would disapprove of. Like, for example, Luke kind of leaves it open that these non-Christian exorcists were using Jesus' name to do exorcisms, and it seems like for a little while, in some cases, it might have been working until it really did. I mean, that's, that's kind of weird, right? Or... In 1 Corinthians 12, 11, it says that there are all these gifts and capacities and abilities that the Holy Spirit pours out on the church, and he treats everybody differently. And so he gives some people some gifts and other people others gifts, and he probably gave another person the gift you wanted, right? And we we all get frustrated because there's not just different gifts, but there's different sizes of gifts. I don't know if you noticed that. And so there are people that have what they feel like are really small gifts, and then other people have these like really big giftings, and we're all kind of angry at each other. But let me just tell you something about that. The people that you think have really big, big gifts, a lot of those people struggle with the weight and the responsibility of those gifts. You think you want a big gift? You just be careful. Because I know people who have really big spiritual gifts, and I know how they feel. And for a lot of those people, it is an enormous weight that they would not have chosen for themselves or continue to choose for themselves. And only by trusting in the sovereignty of God the Holy Spirit do they try to walk in the gift they've been given. And then there are other people that have been given what they think are small gifts, and they really are small gifts in a certain way. And yet, they can't sit around and complain and moan and get angry about the fact that God has commanded them to get in there and use what they've got. It's like the, the guy in the parable of the talents where he only has the one talent, the other guy's like five and ten. He's like, I hardly have anything. And then he gets like thrown to hell because he doesn't use the one little thing he's got. That should be a stirring story in the Bible. But God, God the Holy Spirit is the only one who knows where you're going to be, where you're going to go, how you're going to get there. He's the only person who knows where you've been. He's the only person who knows what you really need and what you really don't need. He's the only person who knows what, if he gives you, it will destroy you. He's the only one who knows any of that stuff. And he is going to disperse his gifts among his church exactly the way he wants to, and he really doesn't care what you think. And having a God who's like that, who's that radically independent, we desperately need that. We need a God who is interacting with us in the real world, in the church, through his spirit, who does what he pleases and is 
and is always messing with us for our good. It's like that teacher that you're so frustrated at their teaching methods, and then like six years later you realize you learned more than any other teacher you ever had. God is a better teacher than that teacher. You need the Holy Spirit. The fourth one is, the Holy Spirit keeps us from playing games with God. Um, Human beings, this is like one of our favorite pastimes, right? This is like, you know, baseball in the old days in America. I mean, all of humanity, our favorite pastime is playing games with God. We love economics. We love getting a deal. How can I put in the least amount and get the most out out of it? Does that make sense? And one of the things that we, in our fleshly sinful condition, naturally do is we're wondering how much we can get from God at how little we can put back in. And what we need is somebody to come and just explode that whole paradigm for us. And so you've got the sons of Sceva, and aprons are coming out from Paul's ministry and, and healing people, and there's this enormous amount of power apparently present in Jesus' name for people who actually believe the gospel, and they say, wait a second, we can use that. Do you see that? We can use that. And so they add in Jesus to all the other stuff that they're doing, and they use the name and hopefully the power of Jesus' name for what they want to do, and they're actually even doing a good thing with it. Right? Freeing people that are demonized, that's a good thing. It's a very charitable thing. And that's what they're doing with it. And they think that that's okay. They think that you can have some of Jesus and not all of Jesus. They think that you can deal in portions. They think that you can, you can sort of have a progressive contract or something like that. And we actually need the Holy Spirit to come and just completely mess up that belief for us. Because it's one of the things that comes up over and over again. It's one of the defaults of our hearts. And so we hear about um, the sons of Sceva, right, getting their behinds handed to them. I mean, I don't know if you, if you know this, but, you know, if you ask when, at what point have you lost a fight? I mean, I really think naked and bleeding. You know, if you, like, you get beat up sometime, and you're, like, bleeding, and somebody's like, I clearly just beat you. You could be like, I ain't naked, you know? You could, you could use that to, like, get back at them, but, it, but then I don't know what's going to happen after that. So, <laughs> And you, know, you know how many people decided to paint that? Hey, let's paint naked and bleeding. Zero. There are no pictures of this. And so if you're in the art team, take this as a commissioning. <laughs> but the, the point here is that the Holy Spirit, through how he providentially worked with this whole event, demonstrated to a whole city what happens with people who even with openly or generally good intentions are toying with the name of Jesus because the name of Jesus is connected to the person Jesus and to the message and truths about Jesus, the gospel. And he doesn't fool with that stuff. And the Holy Spirit will do similar things if necessary to and with and for all of us. And we really need that. All of us, if we take our eyes off of it, off of Jesus for a minute, our hearts will naturally slide right back into, how can I get what I want from God? How can God be there to serve me and not be about the glory of the kingdom of God and the message of the gospel? And the Holy Spirit won't leave us there, and he will keep us from playing games with God if he's in our life. If the Holy Spirit is not actively in your life, 
enlivening your conscience and messing with you, showing you the way forward and showing you what you're drawing back to and teaching you about these things, the default religion in your heart will constantly be moving you towards playing some kind of game with God. And that is not what you need. It's not what we need. It's never going to produce anything good. We need someone who will never allow that. And that should be something that makes us want so much to have the Holy Spirit, to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to walk with the Holy Spirit. Then the last one is, is that the Holy Spirit brings us to reject our other saviors. That is, he keeps pushing us to really trust in Jesus. You can see this in, I know it sounds similar to the last one, but it's a whole other episode in the passage, right? He says, after that event with the sons of Sceva, what happened was that a lot of people came to believe, and they confessed their evil deeds, and they brought, like, occultic magic scrolls out and burned them publicly. And they calculated the, the, the price, and it was 50,000 drachmas, Right? And no matter how you calculate this, it ends up in the millions of dollars. So here are these people, and they were so moved by the Holy Spirit that the other things they were looking to to save them, that is, their, their dark behavior, their hidden actions that they believed would get them where they wanted to go, Their embezzlements, they're conniving, they're gossiping, they're moving back and forth, they're taking this, they're stealing that. All of those, the God of, I will manage my future into existence. They gave up that God. They burned down that idol. I mean, imagine that. And people who used a different God, an occultic spiritual mechanism for getting that, they brought out these enormously valuable scrolls and they burned them. Now, if your idol is a car you shouldn't have bought, you can resell that, right? But there are some things that you're hoping in and that you even possess that you would be harming somebody else to give it to them. And when that, that's the case, it's time to destroy it. And these people did— and it's important to recognize that I'm not, I'm not just—we're not—the Bible, nor am I just attacking the occult. The Bible does attack the occult and says to not participate in it and to repent of it. But it's, it, it attacks side-by-side side immor- just immorality. It's, it basically says they're both darkness. <laughs> both of them are darkness, ultimately. And the, the, the person who's trying to be seemingly a good man and then playing his own cards the way he wants, immorally and cutting down others behind the scenes, he is a participant in the idolatry of the moral occult. And people who have magic scrolls and are trying to do something like that, they are part of a spiritual kind of occult. And both of that, one comes down in the open and the other gets burned, but they both have to get torn down. And that's what happens— when the Holy Spirit gets us to a point where we stop hoping in other saviors. But one of the important things to recognize is is I've actually heard people talking about this passage and saying, listen, if we want a revival, if we want God to move among us, if we want want God's power and we really want to see what God wants to do, here's what we should do. We, We need to confess our sins 
and we need to, to burn our CDs, and we need to like, like we need to, we need to repent. And, and, here, and listen, that is exactly the opposite of the order in which this happens. It's exactly the opposite. That is moralism and religion in the worst possible sense. Here's what happens in the passage. The message of Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit to heal and help unworthy recipients comes first. Comes first. So people getting healed with aprons and handkerchiefs are sinners who hurt other people and who are not nice. They are people who deserve God's wrath and condemnation, and God pours out the power of his Holy Spirit to tell them the truth and to draw them out of it, and to heal the most unworthy people of things that may have very little to do with their spiritual well-being—physical diseases, afflictions, stuff they want gone, but may not have any particular direct relationship to how godly they become or how deeply they repent, and yet God freely heals them, many of them apparently. And then, in this event with the sons of Sceva, he does something so that people realize more about him. That the God that has been so generous as to offer the message of his truth and to heal unworthy people is also serious business. And then something happens to those people. Something the Bible calls faith. They realize that God is good, that he's generous, that he's kind, that he wants us to know the truth, that he wants to draw us to himself, that he's created us to be something, that he wants to transform us and change us and love us. And yet, listen, he is straight up king. He is not to be trifled with. His name is not to be taken lightly. And when that happens, faith begins to well up in people that the Holy Spirit brings about. And then they are moved by that faith in the truth and by the power of the Holy Spirit to do these things. And so this, the first step is not, if you come up and tell us your deepest, darkest secret, you know, God will move in your life. That's not what this text is saying. What he's saying is, is that if you will open yourself to the message of Jesus and believe and trust in him as your only Savior, and if you will let go these other things you're hoping in, whether for temporal salvations, like in your little life, or eternal salvations that you call spiritual, if you will let go these other saviors and these other salvations, and if you trust in Jesus alone, he will do amazing things. And it will result in something so amazing as you being freed from the bondage to your fake saviors and enslaving salvation hopes. The freedom will go that far. And the thing that terrifies you now, that it would come out into the open or that you would have to let it go, will feel like those cold, wet clothes after playing in the snow in February that you take off and throw on the floor before you get into a hot shower. I stole that from C.S. Lewis, by the way. That's what it'll feel like when it happens. If, if you will trust in Jesus and if you will receive, seek to be filled with and walked with the Holy Spirit, he will bring us to reject our other saviors, which we desperately need. And though I, there's probably 20 things the Holy Spirit does in this passage. 
and there's probably 100 or 500 in the Bible. And I just picked five from right here. That's it. I just want you to see how integral receiving the Holy Spirit, knowing the Holy Spirit, walking with the Holy Spirit is to all of Christian faith. You and I were never meant to try to exist as Christians, and we were never meant to exist even as humans without the Holy Spirit. Similarly to how you were created to be shot through with microbes, crustaceans and arachnids and stuff that were they're there that keep you healthy and help you. They're elusive, but they're integral. They're indispensable. Spiritually speaking, the Holy Spirit is indispensable to your life and health and well-being and salvation, to your transformation, to your freedom. Even if you're a terrible mystic like me, you still should not try to be a Christian or to be a human without Jesus and without, without the promised Holy Spirit. And it may seem really weird to you. It may even creep you out a little bit that we are meant to be spiritual in that sense. But it's just the way it is. It's just what God has shown. It's what he's given. It's how he's offered himself. And it's what he's drawn us to. But the Bible has always been clear about this. That the one we are meant to seek and be filled with is the elusive one. In, in John chapter, um, chapter 3, where, where Jesus is talking with this very learned Jewish religious teacher, Nicodemus, he says, listen, you have to be born again. And, and what he means is being born of the Holy Spirit, right, in conversion. And he says, listen, I know you don't understand this. The, it's like the wind. The wind, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You don't know where it comes from. You don't know where it's going. You can't grab it. You can't hold it. You can't. It's very hard to see. You just see its effects, but its effects are you will become spiritually alive. Do you have to be able to quantify and harness the Spirit to be willing by faith to receive its benefit and result, which is Regeneration, life, freedom, liberation, sonship, daughtership, assurance, future redemption, personal strength, unsinkable faith, holy union and communion with the family of God. Yeah, he's really elusive. And yet, that same elusive one that does everything in and for us that we need so desperately is also the one that by faith we can seek to be filled with. Because you don't have to be able to manipulate the Holy Spirit to just simply emotionally and psychologically and personally just open yourself to him and invite him in. And he comes with Jesus. Comes with Jesus. If we recognize that if we know who we are in God and we know God is with us, we cannot give up. That the first thing he says is the first posture is you need to realize what you are and who you are and not give up. And if we would add to that simply that we need the Holy Spirit. And if we didn't get the other five of the seven, if we only got those two straight, we would already be a long way past halfway to finding and experiencing and beginning to build through faith a really unsinkable faith in Jesus.
Let's pray. Father, we, um, we invite you in the person of your Holy Spirit, God, to come now into and to and with all of us to the extent to which we are open. I pray that not out of pressure, but out of persuasion, you would open our hearts to you more deeply, that we would be a people that are open to you in the person of the Holy Spirit in real time, enlivening our conscience, illuminating the scriptures and the gospel, showing us what's true about us, revealing sin, revealing your image in us and how much we're worth, encouraging us, assuring us of your love, that we're your sons and daughters, showing us with depth who Jesus is so we can know him and know you through him, binding us and tying us into the community and fabric of the community of believers in the local church, having the courage to step forward for baptism, and for those of us who haven't given ourselves to you, for the first time, that you'd be convicting us of the truth about Jesus and his death and resurrection and the reality of our sinfulness and the existence of you as God and King of all things. But we pray that we as individuals and we as a church would be a people open to, full of, and walking with the Holy Spirit, and that when you come and fill up as, as feelingly elusive as you might be, we want to be, be a people so full of your, of your spirit that we are indestructible in our faith and in our character and in our spirituality, individually and together as a people. We pray in Christ's name for his sake so that the word of God would be known everywhere and that your name would be held among all of us in high honor. Amen.